I go ahead and apologize right now if you hear my child screaming in the background. The problem is we were wrapping some Christmas gifts and she didn't see anything from Jonesboro Cycle down there. Don't be like me. Go ahead, get your Christmas shopping done early. Go over to Jonesboro Cycle and ATV here in Jonesboro and get them what they really want. They have everything. Brian, they have go-karts. They have scooters, motorcycles, dirt bikes. It don't matter if you're buying for someone that's 3 or 35 or 55. Get Grandpa that scooter that he's been wanting. Buy something good for everybody this year, not just your kids. Go to 2800 Fair Park Boulevard here in Jonesboro. Tell the guys over there that you're a listener of the conversation. You heard about them through us. They're going to hook you up. Or you can go on their website, jonesboroscycle.com, and say, Hey, I want that. Put it in your cart. Put in promo code CRUCIAL. 10% off. Just like that. Don't wait. Christmas is right around the corner. Go to jonesboroscycle.com and they'll take care of you. Your home needs to be a place that you look forward to coming home to whenever you get off work. But that can't happen I mean, if you're going to walk in the house and you're going to be miserable because, number one, you don't want to be there. You want to get a bigger home, a better home, a home that your kids want to bring their friends over to. And to do that, you need to get a hold of Dustin Thomas at Live Oak Realty. You can look him up at listwithliveoak.com or you can call him at 870-520-2522. Again, that is list with Live Oak at 870-520-2522. Two five two two. If you're looking to buy a home, rent a home, sell a home, get a hold of them. Dustin's going to help you out, and he's going to tell you what options you have and how you can earn a profit and how you can get into the home of your dreams without breaking the bank too bad. So to do that, and here's another option you can do. If, you, if you're not looking forward to coming home because your home is a miserable place, it's probably because your air don't work right. And you don't want to be in a home where every time you walk in, the air works kind of sporadically. You can't even get rest at night because you're sweating whenever you're getting under the covers and then when as soon as you take uh, kick the covers off it gets cold and then you're shivering and then you're like what in the world is all this I can't handle this anymore what am I going to do well here's what you're going to do is you're going to get your phone out right now and you're going to call Anderson Heat and Air and you're going to get it fixed you're going to get it taken care of because this is what we're coming to do today is we come to take care of business on the crucial conversation and we're going to help you take care of your business so get your phone out call 870 listen I'm only going to give this one once because this is how important it is. I'm going to give you one shot at this. I can't make you do anything, but this is what's going to happen. You're going to have your phone, and here it is, 870. Wait a minute. If it was important, wouldn't you give them more than one opportunity? No, 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 no. This is serious. This is serious. Oh, and by the way, I don't want to hear nothing from you. And so it's 870-664-1967. You know what? You talked me into it, Tony. I'm going to give it to him one more time. 870-664-1967. Get that air fixed and get a home that you can be proud of. <laughs> you, you know what my favorite thing about Thanksgiving being over is? Is that my family's not here complaining no more. <laughs> Let me tell you why I say that. I hear you laughing, but it's a serious matter. We've had turkey so much. We've had turkey. We had turkey dressing. We had turkey salad. I'm tired of the turkey. Lucky for you, lucky for me, there's a sorry Italian oven here in Jonesboro. You can go by and see them and get anything you want. Their bread is fresh. You get a nice super salad. Heck, get both. We don't care. Get you a nice entree. Brian, what do you recommend from Lazari? I recommend just getting in the parking lot and going in the building and getting the menu. That's what I recommend about Lazari's is because it doesn't matter what you order, you will not be disappointed. Tell them how to get there. 
Well, first of all, you get in your car, you turn it on, and you start driving down the road. You go down to South Caraway Road. You cannot miss the big sign that says Lazari's. It even has an LED screen underneath it. It's a uh, man, man. That's what a place. What a place to be. Fine dining. It's fine dining. You're gonna, they're going to take care of you. And man, I just. I, they're still cracking me up that Tony said that his family comes home and they're being negative. <laughs> oh man, I, I didn't think your family could be negative around all that food. Oh, well, anyway, we're 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 glad that Lazarus is a part of us because we like being a part of them. Go by and see him. If you can't go by and see him and you're stuck at work or something, go ahead and call him at eight seven zero nine three one four seven zero zero. Get it to go, get back to work, get to what you're doing. You know what? Let them take care of dinner tonight. Let them take care of it. Another person that we want to make sure everyone is aware of is Dr. April Jones' company of the Drifted Drum Company. You can find out about the Drifted Drum Company by going to driftedrumcompany.com. And on there, they they sell different Christian apparel. The book, No Mess, No Message, is available there. You want to get a hold of that book. It's going to be a great read. It's going to encourage you through every storm that you're going to be facing through your life because life is not perfect. And, and through all your storm, through all your mess, there is a message in it and you can be encouraged by reading that book no mess no message our final presenting sponsor is awesomescores.com you're not as dumb as your friends think you are you just had a hard time with that act go get prepared this time because the second testing's right around the corner usually dave charges 2.99 but hey you're a part of the family we're not charging you that put in promo code crucial at checkout and get it for a hundred dollars off don't adjust your speakers you heard it right, $100 off. If you don't need to study the whole course, all the courses, pick individually. Normally that's $199. Nope, that's $100 off to get it for $99. Dave's going to take care of you because you're listening to us. Go to awesomescores.com, use promo code CRUCIAL at checkout, and get it for $100 off. That's right, $100 off. That sounds like a lot, but you know what? They care about us. We want to care about you. Get it taken care of. Go to awesomescores.com and get that test under control this year. Brian, tell me a little bit about this episode we got going on. This is one of your good friends. So in this one, first of all, we, we got to talk about this guest that we have. He's a tremendous author. I've, I've read his book about women in ministry entitled A Great is the Company of Women. And Jason Weatherly, you can tell in his writing and when you talk to him, and certainly whenever you listen to this podcast, he is a very educated individual. He's been a defender of the apostolic faith for, for several years and um, has he's got three books that are out that uh, are phenomenal, very scholarly works. And you're going to enjoy this podcast because you're going to get to know about how he came to be who he is today. And it's a story that when you see him, uh, he looks every bit of, of like he's been in church for his entire life. But his story is a story of, of overcoming a past and a childhood of adversity. And, and it's a podcast that's going to encourage people out there that you can have a powerful walk with God, but you got to start walking. There was a young lady being baptized, and when she came up out of that water, I lifted my hands and I felt those little Holy Ghost doodads going down the back of my spine. All the listeners know what I'm talking about if you've ever received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And right about that time, a guy on the platform, his name was Kevin, he jumped off, he laid his hands on my head, and all he said was, Holy Ghost! And boom! I went out on the floor speaking in tongues. And it was the greatest experience I've ever had in my entire life. And I, I'm thankful when, when I pray with my children, I, I pray with them so that they know that God brought us out of darkness. 
into this marvelous life. Hey guys, this is Brian. And I'm Tony. And you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. Tony, I don't know where you're going. We've just now turned on the podcast, and he's already getting up to, to adjust some air. It's about to get hot in this interview because we have got a guest that's here, and he's coming to bring some fire. Uh, Jason uh, Weatherly is with us today. Jason, we thank you very much for coming up and spending some time with us on a Saturday, uh, getting, getting giving you an opportunity, of course, to get away from uh, the, the metro city of, of Cabot, Arkansas. And uh, man, we're, it's our privilege to have you here today. Yes. Thank you guys for, for having me here. I want to say, first off, this is – like an awesome setup. I mean, this is totally professional. I didn't. I mean, you you've got these uh, the radios with the spit guards or whatever you call them, and and it reminds me. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember. Remember the radio preacher days? Yeah. The radio stations. Harvest with, time. The uh, well, even you know the '90s, you would have uh, radio stations that w- would sell their radio time in like 15 minute increments, and so you'd get these preachers up there, and really wasn't you would pay for 15 minutes, but you didn't get. 15 minutes because you'd have your your introduction and then you'd have your ending so preachers will just come up and and they're you know they're either rambling it right off the top of their head <laughs> or holy ghost field or, or or you know what some people will call they might just go freestyle in in the sound booth so you know they'd come in and you'd have like the the dj coming in saying and now it's time for evangelistic outreach with Jason Weatherly. And then you'd have the music, you know, do, 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 do. And then the evangelists would come in and they're all. How's that music go again? Do, 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 do. And I then like the, that. Let's cut that out. The, 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 the one I know is Harvest Time. <laughs> well, that evangelist would just, they get in the mic and the next thing you know, it's just, praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is evangelist Jason Weatherly coming with you with the life-saving, soul-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you about a God that can reach from the guttermost and save you to the uttermost. So you had all this, and that's what this reminds me of. You know, the Jesus that was, this is the Jesus that is. The Jesus that could heal is still healing today. Bro, I want to talk to bro, someone today. Bro. Calm down. You don't got to do that. We, well, you, you got your time today. The, the heat's on. <laughs> man, I told you guys. It's oh, bringing the heat. He's bringing man. the heat today. So to the listeners that can't see, this is this is a professional well, set. This we, is amazing. Uh, thank you so we much. We thank you for that. That's very kind Yeah, we've come a say. long way from when we started at this very table with the mic that you're using was set up on a stand in the middle of the table. We all leaned into it. We all shared one mic. <laughs> yeah, well, shout out to our first guest at uh, – we had to do that, and shout out to our listeners that stuck with us through yes, it. Yes, ever yeah. since then. Uh, well, yeah. I am super excited, as Brian said, to have Jason Weatherly with us. Uh, I'll be honest with all of our listeners. I do not know anything about his backstory, and that's for a reason, is because I wanted to hear it. Um, Brian didn't really, gave me a little bit of a rundown, not quite as much as we usually do. but Well, even I really don't know. We've, we've talked quite a bit on the phone, but usually it's been – Hey, uh, what, uh, I've got a question about this verse. Will you explain it to me? Tell us some, r- real quick about some of your educational background. All right. <clears throat> well, let me just say what we do uh, pers- <clears throat> you know, currently right now. So my wife and I, uh, my wife Nicole and our family, we live in Cabot. We are members of New Life Church Cabot where Brother Gaddy is our, our pastor. Um, my, and we'll get into this in the testimony, but neither my wife or I were born and raised apostolic. So from the time that each of us received the Holy Ghost, we have been soul winners from day one. Uh, that's knocking on doors, passing out tracts, doing home Bible studies. 
And then uh, we attended church in North Little Rock at Pershing United Pentecostal Church, uh, Richard Whittington's pastor. And we were involved in different aspects of ministry there. I helped teach the new converts class for years. And then I, I helped teach uh, an adult Sunday school class with uh, Brother Paul Billingsley. We also were involved, and you'll understand from the testi my testimony, why we were involved in this other aspect. We, we got involved in prison ministries and uh, like drug recovery ministries. They had a, a ministry through Pershing at a, like a halfway house for men. And so me and Paul Billingsley and Benny Smith would go and we would, we would preach and try to outreach to these, uh, these men that are struggling with drug addiction. So from there, moving to um, Cabot, we're at Cabot, and Cabot at the time was the only Purpose Institute campus for Arkansas. And uh, Brother Larry Jimnich asked me if I was uh, interested in teaching Purpose Institute, which I was. So I began teaching Purpose Institute, and I was already involved in teaching Sunday school at New Life and preaching anytime that they would ask. But when I got into Purpose Institute, and let me pause and, and go back just a little bit. So I, I was involved over the years in uh, public debates and studying having public debates uh, on- Weren't you one of the, the youngest apostolic debaters? As far as I know, my uh, I had my first debate at the age of 22. So as far as I know, that's the youngest age of any apostolic to debate in modern times. We don't like to use the term debate in the 21st century. You know, this is the postmodern era, so we'll, we'll use a, a, a softer term. We'll call it apologetics. What it really is, though, is defending the gospel. Um, so that's what I did. You know, being raised outside of apostolic truth when I came into truth, that this is truth, and I'm going to defend truth. So that's how I got uh, involved in that. And then I'll go back and talk more about that in just a minute. But uh, as far as what we do at... New Life in Cabot, uh, became an instructor for Purpose Institute, and at that moment, my wife was uh, taking night classes through Arkansas State, getting her degree in business, and I thought, this is my calling. This teaching is my calling in the ministry. So I went uh, to college, <clears throat> took night courses through Central Baptist College, got a degree in leadership and ministry, and then I figured out a way while I was there to take Greek classes through their seminary that was on the same campus. And then um, immediately graduated that May and started at Urshan Graduate School of Theology in the fall. And I'm about halfway through the Masters of Divinity program through Urshan College. That's awesome. And then I've, I've been an um, instructor for Purpose Institute at the, the Central Arkansas campus since 2013. So we've ran through quite a bit <clears throat> what defines you. Tell us a little bit about um, the time that you weren't in the church and the time before all that whenever you know you didn't have this outlook on your life tell us a little bit about how you got into the church okay so i was not raised apostolic i was not born into an apostolic house uh whatsoever my my parents were not good apostolic holy ghost filled christians uh, my dad was a drug addict and a drug dealer and my mom was a drug addict and alcoholic as a matter of fact everybody on my mom's side of the family save for my grandmother was an alcoholic and a drug addict. Uh, when I was four years old, I watched the Pulaski County and the city of Jacksonville police break in our, or bust in our home and arrest my parents for possession and distribution of drugs. I watched my dad and mom be put up on, against the wall. And I, I, I remember vividly was scared for my parents because I was an innocent four-year-old. I didn't know anything. I didn't know they were doing wrong. 
And I walked up to my dad and, and asked him, you know, Dad, are you, because here's the cops patting my dad down. And I'm asking him, Dad, are you okay? And my dad turns around looking with just this fear in his eyes because, you know, this is, he could lose his kids for this. Um, so, yeah, at four years old, I watched my, my parents be arrested for selling drugs. There was always drugs in our house. Now, my dad was a, a worker and a provider, but there was always drugs in our house. I, what I, kind of drugs was it? Well, started off in the 70s was marijuana. Of course, coming off the end of the, uh, the hippie age, you know, the free love, uh, the, that, that kind of era, there was, there was marijuana, there was LSD, there was acid, there was things of that nature, but then it progressed. Um, and so 20 plus years later, I just happened to be at my dad's house when he was arrested again for selling methamphetamine, crystal meth, or what they call on the street, crank. Was in my, my dad had a shop, he lived out in the country. <clears throat> Never forget, I was there, my dad was there, who was one of his uh, junkie buyers. And let me just stop there. I have seen every walk of life in, in the, you know, the, the lifestyle of, of drugs and being a drug addict. I've seen what you would typically refer to you know, as a crackhead or, or you know, the, the person living on the streets. I've seen school teachers. There were school teachers in the school that I went to that were buying drugs from my dad. There were politicians. The mayor of the town that I lived in was buying drugs from my dad. It's, wow. this, is, this is crazy to me because um, if you were to look at you now, you wouldn't think you came from a, uh, a background like that. Um, yeah, so a suit coat on. Yeah. What, what, what changed? What, what made you decide? I don't want to live that lifestyle because your whole family was involved. Yeah, but in what it. does that do to use a child to see your, your dad put against a wall well, and, and how do you get to where you're at now after from that? Well, what it, what it did for me, you know, a lot of times people, when you tell the story, um, you know, that you were raised by drug addicts and drug dealers, they'll automatically assume, Oh, I bet you must've grew up and been a pothead and a, and a party guy. And yeah. I wasn't, I grew up hating it. It was the family secret. You couldn't have friends over to the house because you were worried, are they going to see the roach clip? Are they going to smell the smell of marijuana on your clothes? Well, the joke's on me because I was probably going to school every day just reeking of marijuana. Um, so how I got out of that lifestyle and how I came into this truth was that uh, my senior year of high school, a friend of mine, his name was Michael, he started dating this young lady named Chastity. And Chastity's mom was our high school cafeteria lunch lady. And her mom is apostolic. And so just from that, I became acquainted with Kathy Sager. And Kathy Sager began praying for Michael and me that we would receive the Holy Ghost. Now, I was 17. I was a senior in high school. This was 1990. Now, I didn't know Kathy was praying for me. All I knew was that at that time in my life, something inside of me clicked that I needed a savior and I was, I was lost and I was going to hell. But I didn't have any kind of religious background whatsoever, so I didn't know what to do. What I did though is I would pray out loud in my room every night, God, don't let me be lost. God, show me the truth. I prayed that over and over again. God, show me the truth. So what I did <clears throat> was I went to the largest denominational church in our town, just started visiting it. And that's where senior in high school, most of the kids, that was the church that they went to. And it just so happened, right about the time I started visiting, they were going on a youth trip to Memphis. There was a, a Dawson McAllister youth trip. I went to that youth trip. There was about 6,000 youth 
at this conference. And it was there that I, I felt genuine conviction in my heart. And they gave the uh, invitation, you know, to make a decision for Christ in your life. And because it was 6,000 kids there, you couldn't all go to the front. You know, when we make an altar call, every come, everyone comes forward to the front. Well, because of fire code, they made everybody go out into the foyer. If we caught on to that in Pentecost, it might cut down on some trips to the bathroom during altar call, <laughs> but that's a different story. So anyway, I, I got up. There were kids around. They followed after us. I go out in the foyer, and I find uh, one of the guys from the church that I, did, I went with, and I was just crying. I had tears streaming down my face, and he said, son, can I help you? And I said, I'm, I'm lost, and I need to be saved. What do I need to do to be saved? He said, son, you need to repent. And I said, out loud or to myself? He said, you do it however you want to. And I fell on my knees and I began to pray out loud, God, forgive me my sins. And of course, there were kids around praying with us. And then when we went back to the church, the home church that, uh, in the town where I lived, that Sunday morning, I did the whole uh, confess Christ as my Savior and shook the preacher's hand and I kept praying, God, show me the truth. God, show me the truth. So, about two weeks after that youth trip, the preacher gets up on a Sunday morning and he begins preaching this message on the modern day Pentecostal tongues movement. I didn't know what a Pentecostal was. I had no idea what he was talking about when he said tongues movement. But he took his text from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting at verse 1. So I opened my Bible. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 14, 1. He that speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God. Howbeit in the spirit he speaks mysteries, for no man understands him. And when I read that, I was hooked. I was like, what in the world is this that I'm reading? And so as he was preaching, I kept on reading. And I just kept on reading 1 Corinthians 14 about these gifts of the spirit and prophesying and interpretation and speaking in tongues and all of this move of the spirit. And I was like, something inside of me was, this is it. So after service... I went to the youth director and I said, what is this speaking in tongue stuff? So he tried to explain it as, you know, if you go to a foreign country and you can't speak their language, that God would anoint you to speak in a foreign language to preach to them, which is absolutely what tongues is not, by the way. Yeah. Most of the people in our audience would know that. But when Peter went to the household of Cornelius, he didn't preach to them in tongues. He preached to them in a language they could understand. But anyway... I, I was like, that's awesome. People do that. And he's like, no, no, no. That was just for the, the early church. That was just for the apostles. And I said, well, hold on. The pastor said, somebody is doing this today. And so the youth pastor said, well, you know, and he named another denomination. He said, well, you know, the so-and-so, they claim to do it, which was fine with me because as a senior in high school, I had friends. I knew that they went to that kind of church. So that Monday morning, I go to uh, I go to school, and I'm talking to my friends that go to that denomination, and I'm asking them, what is this speaking in tongue stuff? And they're like, well, and they try to explain it to me, and they said, I'll tell you what, what you ought to do. Why don't you come to our youth rally we're having this Friday night and come check it out for yourself? So I did. Went to their youth rally, loud music, drums, tambourines, hand clapping, preaching like I'd never heard in my life. And then at the end, they gave an, an invitation, you know, if you need prayer for sickness, come on this side of the altar. If you need prayer for deliverance, come over here. If you want to receive the Holy Ghost, come down the middle. And I'm standing in the back, and 
it's real loud, so you're, you're having to kind of yell when you talk. Like, what is this Holy Ghost stuff? And what is this speaking in tongues? And they said, you need to go up front and, and talk to Brother Scott. That was their youth director. So I walk up to the front, and I introduce myself to Scott. And I'm like, hey, I'm Jason Weatherly. Of course, I'm having to yell, hi, I'm Jason Weatherly. Said, I want to, and I had a Bible in my hand. I said, I, I want to know what this speaking in tongues stuff is. So they had the, the old altar benches. So we sat on the altar bench facing each other. He took my Bible and he flipped to Acts 2-4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. And I said, okay, I got all that. But my pastor said, that's not for us today. He said, no, Jason, that's not true. He flipped the page. He pointed his finger to Acts 2-38. And you shall, be, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you, to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And when I read that, I said, that's it. And old Scott, man, he got excited. He was like, yes, Jason, that's it. I said, that, that's it right there. He goes, Jason, that verse right there says the Holy Ghost is for you today. I said, yes, sir, it sure does. He goes, oh, he, I mean, he got excited. You got to understand the music's pumping that. The, the emotion, there's people dancing and, and running the aisles. And he, he said, Jason, that verse says the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues is for you today. I said, yes, sir, it does. He said, Jason, do you believe that that verse says that the Holy Ghost is for you today? I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, Jason, do you believe that you can receive the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues tonight? I said, yes, sir, I do. He, oh, he got even more excited. He said, Jason, do you want to receive the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues right now? And I said, no, sir, I don't. I just wanted to know if I could. And I got up and I walked out and I kept on praying. God, show me the truth. God, show me the truth. While all of that was going on, Kathy Sager, my high school cafeteria lunch lady, a person that the majority of the world would look at and say, they're, they're not an influence to anybody. And she has become probably the greatest influence in my life. I, I can promise you right now, if it wasn't for Kathy and Calvin Sager, I would not be the man I am today. While all that was going on, Kathy took Michael to church. Michael got the Holy Ghost. Michael got baptized in Jesus' name. So when we were friends in high school, but he was a year younger, and because of work and stuff, we didn't get to hang out that much. But I knew that Michael was going to church and he had changed his life. And he knew that I was going to church and I changed my life. So after work one day, I worked for a pizza company, a little local pizza company, I, I drove deliveries. He hung out after work and he wanted to talk to me about his church. So we sat on the sidewalk. He's telling me about his church and how awesome the music is. And they have this lady that can play the keyboard and sing and her brother plays the drums. And, and I said, Michael, I don't really care about the music. What I want to know is, what do you believe about the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues? And Michael just started crying. He said, Jason, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. I got it. I got the Holy Ghost, man. It's real. You got to try this out. It's real. So that next Sunday, we loaded up about nine or ten kids in my parents' Ford Econoline van. If you know what an Econoline van Big is. Big old thing. It, yeah, it's like a small RV. So we go to, to church that Sunday morning, and I walked into Janice Joe Strand's Sunday school class. Sat in her Sunday school class. I couldn't tell you what Sister Joe Strand taught that day, but I can tell you this. When she got done teaching, she walked around to every student and she laid her hands on their backs 
and she began to pray and she began to speak in tongues. And when she came around and she laid her hands on my back and she began to pray, it felt like a flame of fire went inside and gripped my heart. And I'm not talking metaphorically. I'm not talking colloquially at all. I mean, I felt something I had never felt in my life. And I didn't know exactly what this Holy Ghost stuff was. I just knew I had to catch it. And so I was kind of torn because I'd already built a relationship at this denominational church where I was going. And Michael was real insistent about making a choice where you were going to go to church. And so that night, <clears throat> he, he asked me on the way home. He said, so what'd you think, man? Are you, you ready to start coming to church here? And I said, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to come to church tonight, and I'll check this out again, and I'll let you know my decision that night. And I had already made up in my mind that I was going back to that Pentecostal church, but I was not going to the altar if anybody asked me to go to the altar. Those are famous last words for a lot of people yeah. in an apostolic church. So went to church, great preaching, great worship. They had an invitation for people to go up front. All the youth that we had taken with us went up front. I was the only one standing in the pew. And who was it that came to me? It wasn't Sister Janice Jostrand. It was her mother-in-law, Joanne Jostrand, Bishop Jostrand's wife. And uh, for all the wrong my dad did in his life, he, you know, he did teach me to respect my elders. So she didn't come up and ask me to go to the altar. She said, Jason, I think you need to go to the altar. And I just said, yes, ma'am. And I went up front. Now, I didn't, uh, I didn't get the Holy Ghost that night. I didn't get the Holy Ghost the next night. I thought that the Holy Ghost, receiving the Holy Ghost, was kind of like getting the chicken pox. You know, if, if you have the chicken pox and I'm around you, I'm going to get the chicken pox. So I just knew I was going to catch it. I didn't know when, but I had faith that I was going to catch this Holy Ghost. And I started reading in my Bible. When I, from the time that I had repented in the denominational church, I went to the youth director there, and I, I had a hunger already for reading God's Word. I wanted—I I mean, I was pouring my life into this stuff. And I went to him and I said, I want to read the Bible. Where's a good place to start? And he said, well, you could really start anywhere in the New Testament except Revelation. Don't start in Revelation. If you read Revelation, it'll mess you up. He goes, matter of fact, why don't you, uh, why don't you just start in John? So you, you can start in John and, uh, because John's kind of like reading a novel. And then, you know, just work your way from there. So, of course, I went home that night, and you know exactly what book of the Bible I went home and read. Revelation. Exactly. Because they told you not to. He told me not to. So, you know, lions, by, uh, tigers, and bears on mine. Yeah. It, so then I went to John. So while the whole time this, you know, repenting in this denominational church, going to an apostolic church, I had finished the book of John. And by this time, I got, to, I got back to that verse that that preacher had pointed to when I told him that the pastor said that the Holy Ghost wasn't for us today. And when I got back to that verse, I realized there was a couple of important things he skipped. And that was repentance and baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So when I read Acts 2.38 for the first time for myself, it read like a, a mathematical problem. Two plus two equals four. And so I was, this is it. I've repented. I want to receive the Holy Ghost. I need to get baptized in Jesus' name. So February 3rd, 1991, I went down in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And then one week later, on February 10th, 1991, there was a young lady being baptized. And when she came up out of that water, I lifted my hands and I felt those little Holy Ghost doodads going down the back of my spine. 
All the listeners know what I'm talking about. If you've ever received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And right about that time, a guy on the platform, his name was Kevin. He jumped off. He laid his hands on my head. And all he said was, Holy Ghost. And boom, I went out on the floor speaking in tongues. And it was the greatest experience I've ever had in my entire life. And I, I'm thankful. When, when I pray with my children, I, I pray with them so that they know that God brought us out of darkness into this marvelous light. What did your parents think about all this? That is an interesting question. Um, so although my parents were drug addicts and drug dealers, my aunts and uncles, well, most of my, a few of my uncles didn't live that lifestyle. Most of my aunts didn't. And so I had uh, one uncle in particular, his name's Noble. And when the whole family, the whole Weatherly family, found out that I was now going to a Pentecostal church, I didn't know this at the time. I found out years later. My Uncle Noble cornered my dad up and said, you better not hinder that boy from going to church. You better not make fun of him being a Pentecostal because those Pentecostals are for real. So my dad let me use his truck. I was driving 20, 30 miles to go to church. Uh, he had a 62 GMC. We, it was a big truck. We called it the Whale. I drove it back and forth to, to church so much, I threw the rod in that truck. I must have went through three or four different, you know, scrapper vehicles in, in my youth driving back and forth to, to church. Uh, so they were pretty encouraging about it. Funny story about that whole thing, though, is years later, when we're at Pershing, and my wife and I got involved in prison ministry. Pershing had a, a ministry, I don't know if they still do it, but they, at that time they had a ministry at the, I think it's called the Gaines Unit. It's a men's penitentiary in Newport. So we're there. That's Grimes, Grimes and McPherson. Grimes, yeah. okay, yeah. so yeah. they're Grimes. Grimes. McPherson. Yeah. McPherson's is the women's unit. Yeah. So yeah. we're there at, at the Grimes Unit, and um, we're, we're praying. The, the people from the church are kind of off to the side. And there are male inmates flooding into this auditorium. 200, 250, I think, is what it would hold. So I've got my eyes closed, my hands raised in the air, and all of a sudden I hear this voice cry out, Hey, Jason! I open my eyes. There's an inmate waving his hands. And I recognize him immediately. He was one of my dad's customers. So I wave back. He yells back at me, How's your dad? And I didn't say this, but I felt like telling him, Doing good. 18 months in the penitentiary was the best thing that ever happened to him. And so my, both of my parents uh, testified later in life. My, my dad did 18 months in, in the penitentiary, and they both testified later in life of overcoming their addictions. But at the same time, they both died an early death. Before, before either one of them reached the age of 60 because at, as the products of their reckless youth. You don't put all those chemicals in your body and it just stops. So, yeah, they were very encouraging about it, about me going to church, and I'm, I'm thankful. They never fought me on it one did bit. They, did they ever come into the church themselves? Uh, my, my parents did not. Uh, I, I invited them to church. <clears throat> I preached to both of them. Uh, now, my brother, I did have the opportunity to baptize my brother in Jesus' name. And uh, my brother claimed to have received the, the baptism of the Holy Ghost in a denominational church prior to that. 
but toward the end of my brother's life, he lived with us, and we talked a lot about uh, spiritual things. And so I had the opportunity to, to baptize my brother in Jesus' name. And unfortunately, a few years later on, he, he passed away from a heart attack. So, uh, so when, you, when you said you, you, you and your wife first, so, so uh, not to put her on the spot, but what's some of your wife's story, though? Uh, my wife was not raised in an apostolic home either. Um, her background was that she came from kind of a, a motorcycle uh, gang kind of family. And there was drugs and there was alcohol involved in all of that. Um, so that was kind of the same thing. She did not know for sure, still doesn't know for sure, who her biological father is. She knows who she was told her biological father was. And so in her youth, um, and when I say youth, I'm talking 19, 20 year old around that time, she started on this quest looking for her father and it ended with her finding her heavenly father. And so then that's, that's how she awesome. came into the truth. So the next, go ahead, Brian. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, because uh, where I was going to go, but then I thought of that and I wanted to talk about it. As you said that whenever you guys were first in the church, y'all were soul winners. Tell me about the first soul that y'all won. Oh, I don't, you know, would, that's been, I've, I, that's been back since 1991 uh, when I received the Holy Ghost. And there was people that at my school, talking to them. The oldest person that I can remember, I gave a Bible study to a young man I went to school with, and his name is Michael Fleener. And Michael Fleener is in the truth today. He's still in the apostolic truth, raising his, he goes to church in Judsonia. Um, he's a great guy. So that's one of the ones that, you know, I can say I, I helped win this guy to the Lord, um, and he's still there. Uh, other ones, I mean, you'd give Bible study, and forgive me, but the memory's not quite like it used to be. You can't remember the names and the faces. But um, let me let me segue off from that, though. But given Bible studies and witnessing to people, shortly after receiving the Holy Ghost, I was, I was baptized in Jesus' name, received the Holy Ghost in 1991, and it was January of 1992. I just happened to be at this uh, preacher's house. There was an evangelist there uh, preaching uh, revival that week. And I don't know if he got a phone call or what, but he looked at me and he said, what are you doing tonight? Of course, I was still living at home. And he, he said, what are you doing tonight? And I was like, I don't have any plans. He said, good, go change. You're going to Memphis with me. We're going to a debate. So I rode to Memphis with him uh, to Fraser United Pentecostal Church, which Billy Lewis was the pastor of that church at the time. Uh, Brother Lewis is now deceased. And I, th I think that church now is called Calvary Pentecostal Church. Anyway, so that was my first experience with religious public debates. And, and Billy Lewis de was debating a man named Bill Lockwood, and it was the subject was cessationism, or whether or not the baptism of the Holy Ghost and the miraculous gifts of the Spirit are available today. Because this guy was from a, a denomination that believes that the gifts are ceased and no one's receiving the Holy Ghost, no one's speaking in tongues. And the fact that I had come out of darkness from nothing, from no truth. And I was praying, God, show me the truth. And just and, so happened the first sermon you hear yes. is a message about how that's no longer a, a, a gift that's available today. Yes. And so we go to this debate, and I'm just floored. This is awesome. This is the most amazing. To me, it's an evangelistic outreach because you'll have people that will show up to a religious public debate that would never darken the doors of an apostolic church. 
So that was my first experience here in a public debate. Then later that year, there was another one. Matter of fact, it was here in Jonesboro, and it was on the subject of uh, instrumental music in church. And I became acquainted <clears throat> with a, a pastor of a small church here in Jonesboro at the time. His name was C.E. George. And Elder George and I, we really hit it off. And he gave me a bunch of debate material from some older oneness debaters, names that people that are familiar with that, they would recognize Marvin Hicks, uh, some of Marvin Hicks's debate tapes, Paul Ferguson, and I just really ate this stuff up. I loved it. Well, Elder George had an evangelist out of his church at that time that was involved in public debates. And through that, he met someone in Oklahoma, a, a denominational preacher, that wanted to get involved in debates, but he wanted to debate somebody that had never debated. So he dropped my name. And so the guy contacted me, and that's where we got into uh, the debates. I love these debates because Brian is kind of getting big into debates right now. Yeah, I've got uh, a, I've got a fever. I, I don't know if I'll ever do it, but I kind of have a fever. I kind of want to do some written debate, even though I can't spell worth nothing. But at least I can. Uh, can can I? Can no. I? Say, yes. No. So Brian on Facebook, you don't, saw it. No. Brian, <laughs> Brian thinks a raccoon is spelled raccoon. R A T C O. I've always pronounced it that way, so I just assumed. <laughs> but anyway, so. <laughs> So you were how old whenever you first came into church? Seventeen. Seventeen. So from in in five years, you went from someone that really didn't have much of any background in any church to being apostolic to being a defender of apostolic faith. So obviously the seeds of the debate was sown in you in, in 92. How in five years did you get to the place of, of being a novice to being someone that has is when's been what's been your most recent debate the last debate i had was in january of 2018 and that was just uh, a few miles away from here in lepanto mm -hmm. where uh brother neely is a pastor that was on the subject of head coverings mm -hmm. first corinthians chapter 11 the guy that i debated is uh I'm, I'm not sure if this is exactly what he calls his organization but he's an apostolic orthodox so he blends a lot of Catholicism in with apostolic beliefs. So he baptizes in Jesus' name, but he also believes in baptizing infants. Hmm. So he'll baptize babies in Jesus' name. Well, one of the things he believes is that 1 Corinthians 11 means that women should wear veils or a second covering in church. Um, and so he had challenged a few people on Facebook about having a debate. And at this time in my life, I'm, I'm a full-time graduate student. I work a full-time job. Um, I'm also a Purpose Institute instructor, and I'm an online instructor for Harvest Bible College over in Glasgow, Scotland. So I have a lot on my plate for doing things in the kingdom of God. And I told him, if we do this, it has to be, this is the only time I could do it. And I think it was like February of last year. And, and, and I said, this is, I can't fly anywhere to do this. So we decided that, and Brother Neely was gracious enough to host the debate, and we thought that since it was so close to the northeast corner of Arkansas, it might pull people from southern Missouri, uh, western Tennessee, or whatever. So we had this debate on uh, head coverings, whether the 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about women wearing veils or whether it's talking about their hair. And, and the subjects that I've, I've debated, my first debate... How many years of debate have you done? Uh, I started when I was 22, and I'm 46 now. Okay. I can't do the common core math, but that's over 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and my, my first debates was on spiritual gifts, and I've debated the issue both in um, like a live public debate, you know, where you're, you stand behind a pulpit and you give your speech, they stand up and give their speech. Between doing live public debates and written debates, I've had six debates on spiritual gifts. I've debated music in the church five different times, debated the baptismal formula five times, uh, debated the Godhead three times, I've debated Sabbath keeping twice, and I've debated um, the sacred name movement, Yahweh versus Jesus. I've debated that once. And then also the last debate was head coverings. Uh, So can we talk about a few of those debates for a moment? Uh, One that I think our listeners may find interesting. I wrote down just a few of the subjects that you just mentioned. I want to talk a little bit of them on them. So... With, with musical instruments, now this is something that is a, a passion of Tony's because Tony's been a musician for, you said since you were four years old, you've been beating seven. a drum in, seven years old? Yeah. He's been beating a drum in church. So what, where do we get the scriptural authority to use instruments in the church? Well, first of all, all apostolic authority needs to start in the New Testament. Let's be honest with that. We can use the Old Testament as an example but we don't need to immediately jump into the Psalms. We need to find spiritual authority in the New Testament. And so your spiritual authority in the New Testament is going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, uh, teaching and admonishing one another in Psalms and hymns and spiritual song, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And then also Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 19. And this is these two passages in Ephesians really explain why worship and music is such an important uh, aspect of Pentecostalism. Because Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, not to get too grammatical geeky, But the INGs on each of those, speaking, singing, making melody, those are participles, and they are participles of means. It explains these are the outcome of being filled with the Spirit. And so when you understand that, when you understand that music and worship is an outcome of being filled with the Spirit, then you understand how it is that music is so important in Pentecostalism, and in uh, Ephesians 5.19, singing and making melody. There's only two kinds of melody, vocal and instrumental. So when Paul says singing, that's vocal melody. So when he says singing and making melody, the only other melody to make is musical. Mm -hmm. In fact, the the verb making melody there in Greek is the word pasalo, and it means to pluck the strings of a musical instrument or to sing to musical accompaniment. And then even the fact that, that Paul said, um, speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, the psalms of the Old Testament. So understand the New Testament is where we base our authority. Colossians and Ephesians tells us to teach and speak in psalms. And a psalm, we go back to the Old Testament, and we find out that a psalm is a song sung with musical accompaniment. And so in the psalms, we find things like lifting up of hands, playing of instruments, clapping to the Lord, and what have you. So when you walked into a Pentecostal church for the first time, 
um, a lot of us that are seasoned Pentecostals, we kind of, when we see that new person walk in the back door, we're hoping we don't have one of those worship services. And we're kind of hoping that it don't get overly, I'm going to use the word dramatic, uh, because whenever you're carnal, that's what you're thinking. <laughs> but whenever you walked in, what did you think about Pentecostal worship? Well, my first experience in a Pentecostal church, we went straight to Sunday school. <clears throat> so there was no uh, worship. You know, a lot of churches, their, their Sunday morning routine is everyone comes to the sanctuary first, then you kind of disband into your Sunday school rooms. Um, at Lone Oak, at the time, you went straight to Sunday school. So I already felt a touch from the Holy Ghost when Sister Joe Strain laid her hands on me and prayed. But I, I didn't know what to expect going into the sanctuary. Now, my first experience in the sanctuary was not one of those knockdown, drag out, uh, aisle running, pew jumping kind of services. It was the opposite. It was one of those real somber, emotional, crying. Very worshipful. Very, yes. And there was one guy that was with us. He got up and left. When we got out to the van after church, he was in the back seat shaking, smoking a cigarette, and his eyes were just as big as saucers. And all the rest of us were like, this is so awesome. This is cool. He looked at us. He took a drag off a cigarette. He's like, dude, I ain't never seen anything like that in my whole life. <laughs> so even just that, even just, you know. I, I'm glad you brought um, that name back up, uh, your, your lunch lady. Um, no, Janice Sostrand's an evangelist. What was your lunch lady's name? Kathy Sager. Sager, I'm sorry. Kathy Sager. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I wrote that down because I wanted to go back to your lunch lady. <laughs> but um, what? this is a part A and part B question. Part A is what does that lunch lady mean to you today? Will she ever know what she truly means to you? Oh, yes. I, I go to church with her. Oh, she's still with us? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. So we were <clears> – <throat> let me just back up again. We went to Pershing in North Little Rock for years. And when our older children got to the age where they were involved in the youth, we lived in Cabot, but we were driving to North Little Rock. Economy had tanked, housing market tanked. I worked in the housing market, um, and the job situation was just bad. And we really couldn't afford to drive the 30, 35 miles one way to have the kids involved in youth because it was either stay up there while they're doing things or you drive up there drive back drive up there and we just couldn't afford the gas and there's a church seven miles down the road in you know same faith in the organization even so i did the right thing went to my pastor and told him that we were going to be looking at going to new life church even um talked to brother gaddy about it and and said you know we're gonna we're gonna kind of check it out and, and make up our mind well my wife and i went for some reason, I don't know if we had an off service. We didn't have a Wednesday night or whatever. And so my, just my wife and I, we went um, to a Wednesday night service at New Life in Cabot. We got there fairly early, and this was in their old, old sanctuary, which they now call, uh, we all call Bennett Hall now. So we're in there. We're sitting close to the back, and other people are filling in through church. And I haven't seen who's behind me yet. I mean, church has already started. We've done a few songs. They've done some announcements. And um, somebody said, I don't even think the preaching had started yet, but somebody said something, and I heard this voice behind me, and I'm going to have to back away from the mic to uh, really give you the effect of what I heard. So I hear this voice behind me say, Amen! And I looked at my wife, and I said, That's it. 
that, you know, we hadn't talked to Brother Whittington yet about changing churches. I, I looked at Nicole and I said, that's it. I'm going to go talk to Brother Whittington about changing churches. And she said, what happened? I said, I, I don't even have to turn around. That's Calvin Sager. That's the, Calvin Sager opened his house up after I'd received the Holy Ghost to have Bible studies at his kitchen table. We were going through the search for truth. You remember the search for truth? Yeah. It was like a 17-year yeah. Bible back. study. Flip, it was like flip, 120 flip, flip. volumes or whatever. <laughs> and I'm being facetious, but it was long. Yeah. Um, and so they, they opened up their house. They would, matter of fact, they would take me to church when we didn't, I didn't have a vehicle. So turned around, sure enough, there's Calvin and Kathy Sager. I'd lost touch with them over the years. Um, and what they mean to me is they were my, my mom and dad in the faith. Uh, we buried Brother Calvin last year, and um, Brother Gaddy and I both uh, officiated his his funeral. And it was it was rough, but yeah. at the same time, if I knew anybody, it was one of those where you don't have to make excuses and act like this person lived the life. Calvin Sager lived the life, and so Kathy Sager uh, is is at the same church with us, and that's my mom in the faith. That's and, awesome. And I, I, you know, I check on her all the time because I love her. If it hadn't been for her and, and Brother Calvin, I, I would not be the guy I am today. Well, my part B to that question was, um, this is kind of kind of sound, sound kind of funny, but I'm sure it's not funny at all to you. Do you strive to have a lunch lady mentality? <clears throat> that's funny. I, I work for the Department of Education. I, I work in uh, the construction aspect of it. And I have to go uh, inspect schools from time to time. I have to be careful how I say this because I work for the state, and you know you can't you can get in trouble mixing uh, some religion in with your job, yeah. especially. But I will tell, without having to go into the whole Jesus aspect of my testimony, I will tell lunch ladies, you have no idea the influence you have over these children. They come to school and they see the teachers. You know the teachers make them do work. Now, they love their teachers, but they, they don't love their teachers all the time mm -hmm. because the teachers are making them do work and the teachers are getting on to them. But when they go in that cafeteria, that cafeteria worker is providing nourishment. And it's sad to say that may be the only nourishment, natural nourishment, that they receive all day long. And so I'll tell them uh, the most influential person in my life was my high school cafeteria lunch lady. And Kathy Sager's never going to have her name on a marquee she's she's not a preacher so she's not going to be you know a general conference teacher or something but just someone that your lunch lady i mean come on who would when people say i can't do anything for the lord i'm not so and so you don't have to be so and so you can be the lunch lady who's simply praying for someone because again i didn't know she was praying for me she didn't come up and say hey, I'm praying for you. Would you like to go to church? She just prayed and let God handle it. And God handled it. Mm -hmm. And I felt that conviction in my heart. So I, I try to be that influence to other people, yes. All you had to do is just feed people. Yeah. She fed you physically and spiritually. Amen. That's a, a powerful relationship that can be bound. And you, know, I, you see that with pastors. The reason why people have such close relationships with pastors is because they've been feeding into their soul. It, it, even if you don't know all, you don't have to be a professional chef to feed people. Yeah, well, even in the, the church environment, I've said plenty of times that the most influential preacher in most people's life, like if you've been raised in this, the most influential preacher in your life is not the conference preacher. 
it's your Sunday school teacher. Because when you're a child, your Sunday school teacher is teaching you the basics of Bible reading. They're teaching you the basics of the stories in the Old Testament and the life of Christ. They're also teaching you uh, the fundamentals of worship because when we sing Father Abraham had many sons and we go through the hand movements and the foot movements, we're teaching our children worship and they have that, that uh, burden for youth. And so you think back and we can all think of awesome conference messages that we've heard preached, whether in the district or a general conference or because of the times, but you're always going to have especially if you've been raised in this, you're always going to have that Sunday school teacher, that person that some people would say, well, they're just a Sunday school teacher. Their thank, name's, thank God. Yes. And, and so I didn't have a Sunday school teacher. I had a cafeteria worker. I had a lunch lady. Mm-hmm. And her husband. That taught you and her surgery. husband. I had, a, I had a lunch lady and a guy that worked for Skippy Peanut Butter. Hold on. Skippy peanut butter, that sounds all right to me. <laughs> all right, so I, I want to ask you, a little, I want to shift a little bit here. Brian and I, um, we did, by the time this comes out, we're going to say, I don't know, five weeks ago we did a Bible study uh, because there was a video posted online, a video vlog that hurt my feelings. I can say that. I guess I'm a millennial. <laughs> uh, but uh, you kind of touched on whenever you first went into a church, um, and they were giving you scriptures to read, and you found what you really needed at a later time. From reading 1 Corinthians and Acts 2 and 4, uh, and then going out and finding truth for yourself, um, what made you know that the, the Pentecostal or Holy Ghost experience was real? What, what was it that did it for you? Uh, well, from listening to that preacher preach the first time and reading the scriptures— what did it for me was, as he was preaching, I continued reading 1 Corinthians 14. And the, the thing was, is something in my spirit spoke to me, the Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. Looking back now, the Holy Ghost was speaking to me through the written word. And so it was, the longer he preached, the longer I read. But the problem was, is that some of the things he was saying wasn't lining up with what I was reading. Yeah. So while he was preaching, that we don't need to speak in tongues. I was reading where Paul said, I would that you all speak with tongues. While he was preaching that he was thankful that they didn't act like the Pentecostals and speak in tongues, I was reading in 1 Corinthians where Paul said, I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it was just the fact of not having any sort of religious background <clears throat> and then just being, you know, honestly praying for truth. And the Lord said, the, the Spirit will lead and guide you into all truth. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that's what he did through his word. Truth is powerful. Yes. Truth is absolutely powerful. And when we talked about a few minutes ago about how you debated music in the church, people could listen to that and say, why would we spend so much time debating a, a, a trivial topic? Why don't people just have church however they want to have church? But we've talked about talked on the phone before uh, that be, as a result of that debate, the one the person that you actually debated on the subject, or one of the people that you've debated on that subject, actually made a move closer to, to truth. The the person that you were ag- opposed to moved closer to truth. Will you tell us about that? Yes, and that's actually happened um, in a few different debates. Um, a question that I get asked all the time when you, you talk about debates is like they'll say, "Well, ain't never no one ever been won in a debate," and that's not true. Marvin Hicks's debates. 
I think it was the the Hicks Ramsey debate. After that debate, they baptized like thirty different people from that particular denomination he was debating. They, they baptized him in Jesus' name. What was the proposition in that? On ba- the baptismal Baptism. formula. Uh, my first debate on the baptismal formula, there was a Trinitarian Pentecostal girl there, and she saw the truth, and she got baptized in Jesus' name. That is such a that, that is such a stupid thing to say that nobody's ever been won from a debate. I mean, it's you can go back and find Bible stories where there was a debate with God, you know, just Jonah saying, you know, you don't know what's best for my life. I know what's best for my life. And be, be, and because he chose to listen to God, look who all was one from that. I mean, that's just – okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, even in the book of Acts, we have debate in the book of Acts. Paul debated in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 18 talks about Apollos refuting the Jews, publicly refuting the Jews, and certain translations will say in public debate – demonstrating from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So Paul would not have been your general conference type preacher. He was, he was the debater. Apollos was the eloquent speaker. But even at that, he was debating. Uh, I've heard a preacher many years it's, ago. It says, no, it says what again about Paul? He debated what? Say it again. He, he defended in public debate, demonstrating from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, And I heard a preacher say one time that when Paul went into a town, he looked for two locations. The first location he went to was a synagogue because that's where he was going to debate the Jews. And the second location he looked for was the jail because that's where he was going to be spending the night. (laughs) So in in, in debates, um, I had a debate back in, man, it may have been 2006, 2007 on the baptismal formula. And at that debate... One of the, the preachers from that denomination came to my table and he said, I want to thank you for presenting what you believe to be truth because I, I understand more what you're saying now and what we thought you guys taught was not what you're teaching. So I understand because we were talking about invoking the name of Jesus in baptism. Well, let's just break it down real quick. Now, uh, kind of some obviously you don't have the, the 20 minutes to do a, a – uh, a, uh, your uh, opening statement here, but just as a snippet, what is it that as apostolics we believe about baptism? Well, when the Bible says to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, it means to be baptized having the name of Jesus orally invoked over you. Throughout the Bible, when anybody did an act in the name of a person, it meant that they used that name. David sent his servants to go speak to Nabal in the name of David. Now, we don't know exactly what they said, but the next verse says, they spoke all those words to Nabal in the name of David and ceased. And Nabal said, who is David? So we know that somewhere in that conversation, they had to speak the name of David. When prophets prophesy in the name of the Lord, they said, thus says the Lord, or thus says Yahweh. Uh, When they acted in the the book of, or or in the New Testament, uh, and they performed miracles, in the name of Jesus, it meant they invoked the name of Jesus. And in Luke 9, John and the disciples, they came to Jesus and they said, Master, we found this guy casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow us. What they, how did they know he cast out demons in Jesus' name? Because that's, that's what they heard. And so in the Old Testament, 
Israel was God's chosen people upon whom my name is called. He, he commanded the priest, when you bless the congregation, you bless this way, and you invoke the name of the Lord over the people. So in, in the Old Testament, when it says, if my people which are called by my name, literally it's if my people upon whom my name is called. And there's illustrations all throughout the Old Testament of calling a name over something as a sign of ownership. Then you get into the New Testament. You have the prophecy of uh, in Amos chapter 9 about the tabernacle of David and the Gentiles receiving salvation. And James quotes that passage in Acts 15 when they have the great debate on do the Gentiles have to observe the law and all this, and Peter stands up. But then James stands up and he says, what's going on with the Gentiles? This is all happening because it's a fulfillment of the words of the prophecy. After this, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which is fallen, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord. And all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord. So when the name of Jesus is invoked over us in baptism, it not only communicates the remission of sins, it communicates covenant as the new covenant people of God. And in that debate, when we explain that, the guy's name was Apollos. Or no, I'm sorry, his name was Adonis, this, this denominational preacher. His name was Adonis, and he came up and he was speaking to us after the debate. The next night, they asked him to lead the prayer for their side. And when he prayed, he was like, I want everybody, even those from our side, to listen intently to what has to be said. Because if these gentlemen are presenting truth, we need it. And so my moderator, uh, John Carroll, he's one of my best friends, we just kind of looked at each other and we're like, man, did, did I hear that right? And so then fast forward, uh, 2012. How do you know John, by the way? Um, John's about a, a few years younger than I, and we met at a um, camp meeting in Jacks Creek, Tennessee, back in the early 90s. And there was, uh, that church had a conference or a camp meeting every year. We both hap happened to be at that camp meeting. And he was um, kind of involved in the, kind of the, de the debate scene. Um, he knew some people that were, were debating. And I think, I think by then I may have had my first debate. So he knew that I'd had a debate. And, and so we connected through that. He's a future podcast guest of ours. Yeah, we got that book. Yeah. We booked a flight to go have a podcast with him, so everybody get tuned in for that one. Well, we uh, we co-debated uh, in Alton, Illinois years ago. Um, I don't know if it, if it was his first debate. It might have been his second debate on the Godhead. But he debated uh, two nights on the Godhead, and then I came in that weekend and debated on the baptismal formula and spiritual gifts. But the debate you're referencing about instrumental music – so I think it was 2012, and these debates are on YouTube. They had videoed them, and they're now on, they're on YouTube, and they've been on YouTube since. The, the the guy that I debated, his name was Kevin. He was he was young, and very cocky, very full of himself, um, and I, that's just not my opinion. You guys can listen to him. Go look it up on YouTube and see for yourself. And after the first night of the debate, he had a huge crowd. And, and I had people texting in during the debate, like, what's wrong with this guy? Because it wasn't just simply presenting his side of the, the issue. There was more going on. I'm, and so we're talking. I'm texting people. I don't know what's going on, but there's something 
behind the scenes here going on. After the debate, I, I had at least six to eight elders from that denomination come up to my table and said, Mr. Weatherly, we want to thank you for presenting what you believe to be the truth of God's word in a respectful manner. And that next night, the second night of the debate, Kevin, he had no crowd whatsoever. So after the debate, it might have been a year later, I get an email from him. And he said, I just want to let you know, after because here was, we, we debated all this stuff about music, scripture-wise. He kept wanting to hammer history, church history, church history. And I wouldn't touch it. And I wouldn't touch it on purpose because I wanted that to be my final thing. Because I had researched church history and found out that a lot of things that have been presented as uh, historical teaching on instrumental music in church are more hysterical than historical. <laughs> and I, I searched the volumes of the Antonicene Fathers, the Post-Nicene Fathers, um, and those are all on PDF now, so we can do word searches. It's, it's very simple. And I found all sorts of historical references to instrumental music in the early church. And so the final thing, and I'd made a little booklet and brought it up there, and those people just, they gobbled it up. <clears throat> so anyway, about a year after the debate, Kevin sends me an email, and he says, I just want to let you know that ever since that debate, I had to go back and rethink everything I believed about instrumental music in the church, especially what you said about the history of instrumental music in the church. And he said, I went back and I, I re-examined every argument you made, and you're right. And because of that, because of that one thing, because he realized that he was not preaching the truth on instrumental music in the church, he left that denomination totally and has joined himself with what he called a more spirit-filled group. Now, as far as I don't know if he's oneness now or if that he's even claiming to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, but even that. So when people say, well, why would you debate an, an issue as mundane, so to speak, as instrumental music? That's why. Yeah. And it's not mundane, especially from our aspect as Pentecostals, when you understand Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, that music and worship is a manifestation of us receiving the Holy Ghost. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That is the music and the worship of Pentecost is as much a part of the Pentecostal experience as receiving the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues. Sure. Well, I mean, there is such a valuable role, musicians and singers in the church. And, and, and uh, of course, anybody that's been in, involved in churches, you feel it. You see it. And, and I want to say a salute to all the people that are out there that are listening that are, that are musicians and singers in your churches because you guys get there before everybody. You, you know, you, it's a sacrifice being there, and we appreciate what you do because you bring a, you bring a, uh, a needed ministry into the church. Brother Weatherly, um, you're a big proponent of, of worship and music in the church, as Brian and I, and really almost everybody in our movement is. Um, but... What is the dangers of having that worship and music to becoming a crutch to having a relationship with God? You know, we kind of get offended as, as a in whole when people make the assertion that we are an emotionally driven people. But really we are. Yeah, absolutely. Because our entire experience 
is based upon it. The, the Pentecostal movement is based upon the Pentecostal experience. We're apostolic in doctrine, but we're Pentecostal in experience. That's why I think things like debate or apologetics, however you want to term it, is important. Because when we get into things like the baptism of the Holy Ghost, for many years we've had the attitude of, well, you can't tell me that God doesn't fill people with the Holy Ghost because I've got it. That's not a biblical argument. That's not a biblical defense of the truth. We've got to go to the scriptures because there are other denominations, there even cults who are built upon their experience. So the, the danger in it is when we think that we can control the move of the spirit through the music. When we get the rhythm going, and there's nothing wrong with rhythm, understand. And let me just say this too. I'm not a musician, and I, I couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, so I didn't debate instrumental music in the church to try to justify the fact that I can play a bass or I can play the drums. I, I defended it because it's the truth. Yeah. Um, but there is a, a danger there, and we have to have a balance of what's really the move of the Spirit and what's really... Uh, the, the, the wrapping up of the emotion. And then there's a flip side of that too, because we've seen it where it, the Holy Ghost is really wanting to move and really wanting to move in the worship, in the music, but maybe the leadership in the church is scared of that. And they're, they're worried to let go and let the Holy Ghost take control of the service. And so what do we do? Oh, we're going to bring it down just for a little bit. And so we, we through the music, think that we are changing the order of the service when in reality, could we be quenching the spirit? Mm. Well, Bobby Harkin, episode one, everybody go back. Listen, he said one of the greatest things at one of our home fellowships not too long ago. He said that uh, we were actually talking about this. I wanted to get your opinion on it. Brian, I believe you were out of town for the last home fellowship. Was that right? Yeah, I was. Um, but he, we were talking about worship and music and media and the church becoming a crutch. And, you know, I really saw the side of that because I've, I've let myself um, get to the place where sometimes I feel like, you know, I am going through the motions. But Bobby Harkin said something that was so profound but yet so simple. It was like, yeah, it can be a crutch, but sometimes we need crutches to walk. When we're broken and we don't we can't walk by ourselves we need something to lean on to and that worship is there to get me through that and um it, it's there to help me get through when i'm struggling when i can't lift my hands it's there to help me lift my hands and you know so whenever you feel like you can't necessarily make it through what you're going through rely on what you know yeah is pleasing to god yeah and even learning how to walk as a christian you can use praise and worship just like a toddler uses a walker. Yeah. Uh, the thing, though, is that when you get to the point where you can walk on your own, it doesn't mean we throw the walker out with all the babies. It's just don't, don't try to run the service through the music. Uh, I've been in church services that were powerful in the spirit when all we had was a tambourine, uh, an old washboard, and somebody with a nail set rubbing that that washboard and keeping a bead on the washboard. What year was this? Now, that was still in the 90s. Wow. We're talking about, <laughs> we're talking about small 
Country church. Churches that don't have any money, they can't afford. They don't to, have Old Fashioned Sunday. They have that every Sunday. That's right. They have yeah, Sunday. Yeah, <laughs> that's just Sunday to them because they don't have the money to, uh, you know, when when the, the pastor of the church is during Monday through Friday, he's framing houses and pouring everything that he can into this church, and, but they can't afford drums or a keyboard. You just do what you can. You, you bang a tambourine and, and you got somebody that, may have a six-string guitar and it's missing three of the strings, and then somebody else is over here with a rub board and a nail set, right. and that's powerful, powerful church. Hey, God can still move. That's right. God can still move. God moved with Paul and Silas, and as far as I know, they didn't have any musical instruments. Yeah, the only instrument they had was the sound of the chain. They that's were, right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and, and we let a tambourine mess with us. <laughs> Shout uh, out, Sister Runyon. <laughs> So, uh, so I got to ask you about one of these these topics that you've debated because uh, I would think, uh, being in your situation, it would be a very personal subject for you to debate. Is the subject of that the supernatural has ceased, and so because that was the first message that you were you encountered when you first came to the church, you've had the opportunity to debate people that believe that the Holy Ghost isn't for today and that. The supernatural doesn't happen. Can we talk about that for a moment? Because that's a subject that I've had a few discussions with with people about, and uh, kind of get the way that you answer the are the critics that would say that uh, God no longer operates through the miraculous in the in the church today. Sure, that that doctrine is called cessationism, which means that they believe that the gifts of the Holy Ghost, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, has ceased and is no longer in existence today. Most of them believe that the miraculous ceased toward the end of the first century around the time of the death of the uh, Apostle John. <clears throat> so from our point of view, again, a, a knee-jerk reaction a lot of times from people that are not well-versed in the Scriptures is to say, well, you can't tell me because I've experienced it. But you can't make an argument from an experience because, again, there are uh, false denominations and there are cults that base their whole doctrine on experience. You know, there's one in particular that has, they, they base their entire doctrine on, on this man's experience of having these special glasses and he received this, uh, these tablets or what have you. Well, you, you can't argue against that guy's experience now, can you? Well, of course you can. We go to the scriptures. So even the prophecy of the baptism of the Holy Ghost in the book of Joel, it'll come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh the Jews who understand the Hebrew language would have known that that was not just a one-time pouring. The word pour there in Hebrew is an imperfect participle. And it means once you, if, we, if I wouldn't have made a mess doing it, I'd take this bottle of water and I would just start pouring it all over this please table. Don't, please I'm don't. I'm not. <laughs> so what, what that means, though, is God didn't just pour his spirit out on the day of Pentecost. And then he waited and poured it out again in Acts chapter 10. That means that when the last days started, he, he started pouring out his spirit. And he's not going to quit pouring out his spirit until the last days cease. And the last days do not cease until that great and terrible day of the Lord. That's the, the parousia, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Paul even deals with a time that, <clears throat> that gifts are going to cease. Now he's making an argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and 13 and 14. You've got to understand that the book of 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to a letter written to him from the Corinthian church. In chapter 1, he says, It's been uh, revealed to me by them of the household of Chloe that there is divisions among you. 
And then even in chapter 7, he says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote to me. So he's responding to this letter to the Corinthians. And I love 1 Corinthians for that because it dispels a lot of what uh, misunderstandings of what writing by inspiration of God means. All scripture is given by inspiration of God doesn't mean that the apostles were overcome in some Holy Ghost trance and they just started scribbling words on a tablet and didn't know what they were writing. No, Paul had to respond to this letter to the Corinthians and every word that he wrote was by inspiration. So the Corinthians had this issue, too many people speaking in tongues, uh, too many people prophesying. Apparently there were women asking questions aloud and he was correcting these issues and he said, hey, everybody can speak in tongues, uh, you know, but if you're going to speak in tongues, let it be two or three and, and let somebody interpret. And if there's no interpreter, then let him keep silence in the church. And then he said to the prophets, you know, let the prophets prophesy, but let them prophesy in turn two or three and let the other ones keep silence. And then to those women that were causing disruptions, he said, uh, let your women keep silent on the church, for it's not permitted unto them to speak. If they want to know anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. So he was correcting these things going on in the church. So then he gets to chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13, and he's letting them know, you guys are putting a big uh, to-do on these spiritual gifts, but I want to let you know that all the spiritual gifts in the world don't mean anything without love. If I speak in tongues of men and angels and I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I can prophesy and I can do all these things and I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I could speak to that mountain, be removed, and I don't have love, I'm nothing. And then he says the reason for that is because tongues are going to cease, prophesying is going to cease, the word of knowledge is going to cease. There's going to come a time when those things are going to cease. He said, but these things are in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then those things that are in part are going to cease. His point here was the supremacy of love because in chapter 14 he says let me show you a more perfect way follow after spiritual gifts and love but he tells them of this time when spiritual gifts are going to cease and that one day they are going to cease but they're going to cease when that which is perfect is come and at that time when that which is perfect is come he says now we see through a glass darkly but then face to face now I know in part, but then I will know even as I am known. So let me ask you a question. Who's Paul talking about? Then I will know even as I am known. Known by who? Known by man? No. Paul knew more about himself than anybody. Tony, you know more about yourself than anybody in this entire world. I know more about myself than anybody. Brian, you know more about yourself than anybody else. So Paul said, when that which is perfect is come, when the gifts of the Spirit cease, when we see face to face, then I will know even as I am known. Known by who? Well, the implication there is known by God. When we see him face to face. And John says the same thing. He said, beloved, it does not yet appear what we shall be. But I know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is or as Paul put it face to face mm -hmm. so when Jesus Christ comes back and we see Jesus Christ face to face and we are like him there'll be no need for prophesying all prophecy 
will be fulfilled. There'll be no need for a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge because we're going to know as we are known. There'll be no need for tongues and interpretation because we're all going to speak the same language. There'll be no need for miraculous faith or miracles or gifts of healing because there's not going to be any sickness. But that's going to be when Jesus Christ returns. So God's pouring out his spirit all throughout the last days. And for anybody that has not received the gift of the Holy Ghost and you're listening to this podcast, I admonish you to pray and seek the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's for you, it's for your children, it's for all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And I promise you, he's still calling people by the gospel today. Absolutely. Until the the second coming of Jesus Christ, that call is still a call that can be answered. I know the scripture says no man know the day nor hour when he will return. When do you think he will return? Because the book of Revelation so says that there's going to be certain events that happen. And I've heard a lot of preachers preach that, you know, some of these seals have been open, you know. Uh, what, what do you think? Are we living in the last time, last days? Well, we're living in the last days because we've been living in the last days since the day of Pentecost. The last days is, to use the big term, the eschatological last days. <clears throat> Even Peter talked about later on in his epistles about the last days. So the last days, like in Acts chapter 2, it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. When you hear people talk about, we're living in the last days. Yes, we are. We've been living in the last days since Acts chapter 2. Now, when we get into eschatology, the return of the Lord, when will that be? Well, no man knows the day of the hour. Uh, so if the question, if you're pointing, wanting to know like a view on pre, mid, or post, I'm, I'm pulling the question if that's what you're asking. Yeah, so what I want you to, Brian and I, we know what you mean by that. Tell our listeners what pre, pit, pre mid, and post-trib is, and what, what is your thoughts on that? Because right, well, you, just, you just did a big study on eschatology, correct? Yes. Okay, yes. so tell us what you're, you're, you're finding in your studies. So the uh, eschatology, uh, eschatos is the word last, and eschatology is the study of the last things. And when you talk about eschatology, the main subject is the return of the Lord. When's the Lord going to return? And there's, uh, there's a bunch of different views out there, but the, the three main ones are the pre-tribulation rapture, the mid-tribulation rapture, or the post-tribulation rapture. Uh, the word rapture is not in the English Bible, but where we get that from is from the Latin Vulgate. And the and catching away. The catching away. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, Paul says, I would not have you all to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you, here's the catcher, for this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord. That's the saying of the Lord. So Paul is appealing to something that Jesus has already said. For we say this unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them that sleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so ever shall we be with the Lord. So that's the rapture passage. The key for understanding that is that Paul says, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. So he's appealing to something the Lord has already said. 
Well, where's the only place in the Gospels that Jesus talks about his coming? It's in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Matthew 24, uh, Mark, I believe it's Mark 13, Luke 22, chapter 22, Mm -hmm. thereabouts. And so here's what Jesus said. And I want you to notice the, uh, the similarities between what Paul says and what Jesus says. Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the power sh- shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And that's what the word of the Lord is about his coming. 1 Thessalonians 4 and Jesus' discourse in the, Olivet Disc- in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 22, I believe it is, are the only passages in the entire New Testament that talk about the coming of the Lord, are gathering together angels, trumpets, and sounds. So you ask me, when does that take place? I'm just going to give you the same thing that Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So if you can't figure out which side of the uh, pre, mid, or post that I Hold on. I believe. And, and, and so with, with, with me, because you know, I'm, I'm a strong post-tribulation believer myself, and to me the answer of it is even in Acts chapter number 2 because when Peter is quoting from Joel, the pouring out, as you made mention of, of the Holy Ghost, if we believe the Holy Ghost is the entrance into the church, is that, that is the born-again experience, that if we believe the Holy Ghost is what Joel prophesied that Peter was quoting, it talks about how in the last day, saith God, I will pour it out of my spirit upon all flesh, and it talks about all these events, and it says in verse number uh, 20 of Acts chapter number 2, and it says, And I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs of the earth beneath, and the fire and vapor of smoke. That's 19, I'm sorry. I read the wrong verse. And the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And so it says in there that I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. All these supernatural events will happen, and the only time that they cease is when that great notable day that the Lord comes. And so here's my question. If you believe that the rapture and the second coming, the parasy, are two separate events, then you have to believe that after the rapture, the Holy Ghost still has to be poured out during the time of the tribulation. And so do you believe the church exits and then a new church is born? No, not at all. That is the that, big question. So, yeah, that's, that's the thing is... Um, and, and if Because the Holy read, Ghost still has to be there during that tribulation. Everything that we, we believe as apostolics... Is, is rooted and founded on two principles, first and foremost. And those two principles are the oneness of the Godhead and Acts 2.38. In Mark 12.29, Jesus said, The first commandment of all is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is the foundation of the entire yeah. Bible. Yes. Then off of that, because we understand the one God message, and when we get to Matthew 28, uh, 19, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and that name is Jesus. So everything is based, the foundation of all Scripture is the Shema, oneness of the Godhead. The next thing is Acts 2.38, salvation. Then every doctrine that we teach must agree yeah. with those. It must agree with our theology and our Christology. That's the Shema. Deuteronomy 6 and 4, uh, Mark 12.29. 
And it also must agree with our soteriology. That's Acts 2.38. So if the church... The study of the salvation. Study of salvation. So if you... If the church is raptured before the tribulation, how are people saved in the tribulation? Are they saved by the blood of Christ? Well, if they're saved by the blood, how do they get saved? The only way to get saved by the blood is through Acts 2.38. And there's an interesting passage when John is seeing this vision of the things that take place in the great tribulation. He says in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindred and people and tongues stood before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hand, crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God. And he sees these people. Nobody could, could number them. And then John marvels at them. And he says to one of these elders, he says, Well, well who are these people that are arrayed? Verse 13. Who, who are these that are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And then the elder, this is one of the 24 elders, he says to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are they which came out of, and there's a definite article, I believe, in the Greek text, the great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And I ask people all the time, they're coming out of the great tribulation, and they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How in the world did they get their their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb? Because Acts 2.38 salvation is still happening. That's right. And if they're being baptized in Jesus' name and they're being filled with the Holy Ghost, they're being baptized into Christ, Romans 6.3. They're being baptized in the Spirit into one body, 1 Corinthians 12.13. So they're the church. So again, eschatology has to fit our soteriology. Now I know yeah. not every apostolic agrees with that. And for those that don't, I would simply ask you to re-examine, does your belief on the second coming of Christ match what you believe mm-hmm. about Acts 2.38 salvation? So we are the Crucial Conversation podcast. And one of the things that we, we, we want to do in this is we, we want to start those conversations. And to me, I think that it's important that we as an apostolic church have those kinds of conversations to really examine and so one thing that you had made a mention of as a passage of Scripture early on, Acts chapter number 15, and talked about how they had a debate in Acts 15. Was that Christian versus non-Christian? No, that was Christian. Christians talking about uh, with other Christians about issues in the church. Exactly. I think it's still important, and your friend uh, John Carroll has a blog post about this subject about how one thing I wish apostolics would do. Of course, he wrote it back in like 2008. I had to dig back to find it. And, and whenever I read that article, I was like, man, that is true. It, I think apostolics should debate one another on these different subjects to bring a clarity into the church of being like, what do we really believe? Have we really considered this from all angles? It, it's not a way of saying, okay, well, if I beat you in this debate, you're no longer in fellowship. And that's, right. that's what I want right. I wanted to ask you, and Brian even just brought it up, Whenever you go into these debates, what's your heart? What's your mindset? What do you pray before you go into these debates? It's all about truth. It's When you go into a debate, it's not a matter of how can I best my opponent. Now, I'm not saying we don't have fun with it. And if you're familiar with political debates, uh, you'll hear your zingers. You know, they've got, whether intentional or, or non-intentional. Yeah, we love them. We love them. <laughs> you've, you've got your zingers in the debate. Um, and so you'll come up with different debate arguments. and. You hear the same thing, especially if you've studied debates. And I've read and listened to a bunch of debates. And I've picked things that I thought worked and things that I, I didn't think worked and, and kind of formulated my style from that. 
Um, and so you have, again, you have your zingers in the debate. Like um, when I debate on spiritual gifts, I'll typically have a chart called the chicken coop. And I ha- I'm an artist, so I can draw, and I draw a bunch of chickens. And on their the, instead of chicken heads, I draw the heads of people. So one of them is the devil. One of them is a Pharisee. One of them is a guy whose hair is on fire. And then there's another guy who's all black and blue. And the last chicken is going to be my opponent. I will draw his head on a chicken. And it's the chicken coop. Birds of a feather flock together. The devil said, if you be the son of God, turn these breads into stone. If you really have what you say you have, perform a miracle. Because that's ultimately where that debate always goes that's to. That's it. Is, is you can say all this stuff, well, show me a miracle right that's now. That's right. They, they I've were, heard that four or five, uh, the, the two times I've had it, heard, uh, I've debated people, because like, it's always been in a room with multiple people. Like every time, half of the crew will eventually get to that, and then we'll spend 20 minutes being like, listen, you don't understand. I can't perform a miracle. Yeah. But I like what, I like that. Go ahead and continue. Yeah, so, so you, the, you'll, the you have your little zingers and stuff. I debated the, the Godhead, and I had a chart ready of um, – you know, my opponent believes in one God and three persons. Does, does that mean that he could have one wife in three persons? Ooh. And then I drew a picture of oh, him. thank you. <laughs> I, I drew a picture of him with um, Betty, Betty from um, Flintstones, Daphne from Scooby-Doo, and Blondie from Dagwood and Blondie. And I said, you know, he's got him a brunette, a redhead, and a blonde, and those are three persons. But he says that's one wife. But is it one wife? No, it's not one wife. It's three wives, and we call that polygamy just like the belief of three persons in one god is not monotheism it's polytheism and that's the implication whether they say they believe that or not my favorite chart that you have is there's one where you're talking about what they believe about god and you talk about well if you've got these three apples here there's three apples and so that that, by implication it means you believe in three gods now how do you like those apples yeah yeah Yeah, so the argument goes like this well we have we have one apple nature, but there's three fruit. And so three fruit with the one apple nature equals what? Three apples. Just like if you say, well, there's one divine nature, but there's three persons, and each person shares or possesses that one divine nature, that's three gods. Yeah. And then I tell them, deal with those apples. <laughs> but, uh, so, but my attitude in it, you have your zingers, that's granted, because you want to you not only make your presentation uh, academic, you don't just want to get up there and present facts and bore everyone to tears. But ultimately, it's about truth. It's all about truth. And quite honestly, I'm, I'm friends. The, one of the guys that I've debated over the years, I'm friends with him. We're friends on Facebook. He'll email, uh, email me. He had a debate in Jacksonville, Arkansas, against another denomination. It wasn't even – apostolics were not even involved in this debate. And I went to that debate to listen to him. And so um, it was on the subject of baptism. How bad did you want to get involved? Well, I did get involved. The, the, guy, made a, the guy made an argument. The, the Calvinist, I'll just call him a Calvinist. The Calvinist made an argument trying to say that you don't have to be baptized in order to be saved. And he made an argument from Greek. And I was sitting behind Pat, the other debater, the guy that I've debated. And I pulled it up on the computer and I was like, okay, here's his chart. His chart says this, but he's got that backwards. This word is this. And Pat said, well, I don't know Greek. And I said, you don't have to know Greek. Read his chart and look at this. And when I showed it to him, he realized the guy had flipped the argument. And so then Pat got back up there and he said, my friend Jason pointed this out to me. And it, the whole crowd was like, 
ooh, because it kind of blew up in his face. It made the guy mad. So the Calvinists got up in his last speech, and they were scheduled to have a debate. That was on a Friday night. They were scheduled to have a debate on Saturday on once saved, always saved. And that guy got up, and he said, there won't be another debate tomorrow. This is not what I signed up for. I didn't know you were going to bring some shadow scholar in here. You don't question me on what I say. And he told the church. He, he named the, you know, all the members of so-and-so church, stand up. Now, everybody else, if you're not a part of this church, it's time for you to leave. And they turned the lights out on us. My daughter was with me at the time. She looked at me and goes, thanks, Dad. You got us kicked out of church. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but the thing about Acts 15 is in Acts 15, they did have a debate over a very important issue. And guess what? It did not harm, for the greater sense, the brotherhood. The brotherhood. Mm-hmm. So we can talk and we can have discussions on issues and it should not affect the unity of the brethren yeah i want to ask you if you could think of some subjects that you think would be worthwhile for us to discuss and i want to ask you while you're thinking about that to to chew on this as well and and if you can tie these together do you think there are points of our every doctrine we have all points back to the oneness do you think there are some things about the oneness we need to re-examine yeah there's there's probably some aspects of the oneness doctrine that we we need to look at as a body, um, dare I say, as an organization. And we've done that in the past because things have come up like divine flesh. And so when an issue comes up such as divine flesh, then what we have to do as an organization, as a body, is make a statement about that. We do not believe in divine flesh. And even the early church did the same thing because you had an issue called the adoptinist heresy that Jesus was not Christ from birth, that he became Christ uh, at his baptism. And so the, the church had to make um, a decision as a whole on that. You had the issue of Arianism. You know, is, is Jesus divine? And we, you know, we run into things of in, even in the 21st century of oneness Pentecostals may not have the same ideologies or see the same, the, the scriptures the same as far as uh, Jesus's deity or uh, Jesus's pre-existence or, or things of that nature. And I, I think it's good that we would come together um, and discuss those issues and, and really, and it's not for a fact of saying I'm proving what's right and I'm proving yeah, we're not heresy hunting. It's trying to bring, debate's really trying to bring unity to the brethren. Um, I, I think a, an important issue in our movement <clears throat> and again, I'll preface it. I used to be able to say that uh, I don't have a, a a dog in the fight, so to speak, because my wife's not a preacher and, and none of my daughters are preachers. But I really can't say that now because I have a daughter who's now speaking and, and uh, teaching lessons in her youth class. But the issue of women in ministry, uh, I mean, this is the 21st century, guys. We're, we're still, we got people that won't allow women to, speak behind the pulpit I mean we'll let them well I guess they'll let them speak right I mean they can sing about Acts 238 they can testify about Acts 238 um, you know they, they can prophesy about Acts 238 uh, they can quote Acts 238 but bless God don't get up behind the pulpit open a Bible and have a sheet of notes and expound on Acts 238 so that would be an issue and, and, and as organizations you know we're we license and ordain women in ministry Yet we still have those that are just 
And they reach people that we can't as men reach. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Did you write, did you write a book about that? Mm. Yes, uh, good advertisement part here. Yeah, I have. I've actually, from, from the debates, um, I've taken information that I, I've gathered from the debates, uh, and I've written three books. <clears throat> the first book is called Calling on the Name of Jesus, an Apostolic Apologetic of the Baptismal Formula. And it deals specifically with why we invoke the name of Jesus in baptism. <clears throat> I go through the church history of the controversies of the baptismal formula. It deals with a uh, Trinitarian argument now of baptism in Jesus' name because you have Trinitarian academics and scholars that, yeah, they'll acknowledge that the early church baptized in Jesus' name, but that doesn't that's mean that's sure. what they said. Mm-hmm. What The way they get around it is they say, well, all Acts 2.38 means is they baptized by Christ's authority. What they said was the words of Matthew 28.19. So I deal with that. <clears throat> what does a phrase in the name of mean? I deal with invoking the name of Jesus over uh, individuals. So that's the book, Calling on the Name of Jesus. I did write a book on women in ministry. And <clears throat> in that book, I quote a, a small handful of apostolic authors just to examine their, their position on it. And, and like an argumentation on the priesthood of the Old Testament. And I won't get into all that. If you're interested, you can buy the book. It's available on Amazon. Uh, but that book is called Great Was the Company of Women. And that's a play on Psalm 6811. Great was the company of women. Uh, and then after the debate in Lepanto on uh, the head covering issue, 1 Corinthians 11, I had presented or prepared, excuse me, I prepared like over 200 PowerPoint slides for this debate. And of course, you're not going to get to all of those, but you have to be prepared for any kind of argument that's going to come at you. Um, so from that, several ministers came to me and they said, look, you need to put these charts in book form. So that's what I did. I took a chapter out of my Woman Preacher book because in the Woman Preacher book, and it's not just women in ministry, it's women in the Bible. I start in Genesis and we work our way through the Old Testament. And <clears throat> just to, to let the, the listeners know, um, I think it's a very balanced view of women in the church. You, you have a view called um, egalitarianism that just kind of runs amok with women's role in the church. And then you have another view called complementarianism, which is very anti-woman preacher. And my book doesn't present either. It presents an apostolic, what I believe is an apostolic theology of women in ministry. But I do have a chapter in there, um, as a joke I say, it's the longest chapter in the book, naturally, on 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and the hair issue. So after the debate on head coverings, and the minister said, we need to put, you need to put these charts in book form, and we need this information, I took that chapter out of the woman preacher book and expanded on it, added even more information, academics, and uh, then I put my charts from the debate in that book. And the name of that book is A Woman's Glory, a look at headship, head covering, and hair. So uh, I, I think it's awesome that that you being an advocate for, uh, for, for women's ministry because 
there are so many powerful women preachers that are out there. You've got like Vesta Mangan and even uh, Jessica uh, Marquez that we recently had on the podcast. These are these are tremendous women of God, and that they have an opportunity now. Uh, or or they of course is Vesta Mangan. She's had an opportunity forever. She could probably preach. She's probably the one exception. She could pretty much preach anywhere. But yeah. uh, but that's such a, a powerful ministry that that is out there. That like as Tony said, they minister to. You, you, you as a lady can minister to a demographic that, as a man, we can't connect w- as well with because yeah. we haven't walked in those same and shoes. And that's why we try to get a lot of women on our podcast and, is yes. because they minister in a way we can't. And that's not just to other women. No, no, no absolutely women, not. Women can minister to men in a way that— You're lunch late. That's, Help me out with that's that. That's exactly right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, talk a little bit about that. Well, d- just the— the oh man, this so so gets into 21st century issues of politics that we're going through of people trying First to fi- figure out their you know what their gender is, and there's only two sexes that's that's male and female. Uh, when I was in high school, I took Spanish, and my Spanish teacher told me that gender is re- regards language and sex revol- uh, regards humans. So humans have sex, not gender. Language has gender. Um, and I know that words can change their meaning over time. But even my Greek professor said, language has gender, humans have sex. So no one's picking their gender because male is not a gender. Masculine is a gender. Female is not a gender. Feminine is a gender. And then in some languages, they have a third gender, neuter. And I don't know anybody that's picking to be neutered. But anyway... <laughs> But even as that, God made us different. And as, especially as apostolics, we understand those gender distinctions. And, and it's not just us. You know, denominations for years preach this same thing. I quote in my book, A Woman's Glory, I quote denominational scholars who said the same thing about gender distinctions and hair that we are still preaching to this day. So as men, we are more analytical thinkers and, yeah. and women more on the emotional side. And so sometimes that's what we need as men because it's hard for us to break that emotional barrier. And sometimes it's it's a woman preaching that can tug on those heartstrings. Yeah. Uh, can you give us a, a snippet of, of what you cover in that long chapter? On, on women's hair. On women's hair? <clears throat> so 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Paul is dealing with an issue of headship. There are uh, there's issues in the church, in the, the early church, the cultural issues always revolved around Jew and Gentile. And so what I cover in the, the longest chapter in Great Was the Company of Women and the entire book of A Woman's Glory is I simply start off with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, that the... Christ is the head of every man, man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. And I just break it down verse by verse by verse by verse. And when you get to uh, verses 4, verses 5, Paul starts making this uh, logical argument of, of progression. Like, if you're going to do this, you might as well do that. But since that is very bad, don't even do this. So we might tell our children, if you're going to steal a piece of candy, you might as well rob a bank. And since robbing a bank is a felony, don't even steal a piece of candy. And so Paul makes the argument, if a woman is not covered or not fully covered, 
then let her even be shorn. But since it's a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. And so I just, I exegete all of those. I, I have a, an entire chapter on what does the phrase because of the angels means. That's been kind of a controversial subject in apostolic ranks of uh, for this cause should a woman have authority upon her head because of the angels. We talk about that. I, I get into the subject of uh, does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a shame unto him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory unto her. Well, what does it mean to have long hair? How long is long? So all of that's in there. I quote uh, scholars and academics of various denominational beliefs, and they're saying the same thing that we're preaching. So uh, obviously, uh, we always get to the end of our podcast and give our our guests an opportunity to give a book recommendation. I think... uh, You've just made a, a wonderful uh, recommendation <laughs> for your own books. Uh, so w- one more time, just to clarify to all of our listeners out there, what all books do you have? Where are they available? And do you have any books that, uh, that, have, that you have read that have tremendously impacted your life? Well, my books, uh, the, the book titles are Calling on the Name of Jesus, an Apostolic Apologetic of the Baptismal Formula. The second book is Great Was the Company of Women, an apostolic theology of women in ministry. And the third book is called A Woman's Glory, a look at headship, head covering, and hair. They're available in print form or Kindle on Amazon.com. You just go to Amazon and you just type in the search bar, Jason Weatherly, and those books will come up. And as far as uh, what books I have read that I would recommend, um, Two books that I would recommend, and it's not going to come of any surprise that these are David K. Bernard books, but uh, he's got a book that was put out here recently called Understanding God's Word, and it really sets the tempo of an apostolic apologetic of the Scriptures, understanding the Scriptures from an apostolic point of view, because we approach the Scriptures differently than the denominational world, especially Trinitarians. You think of the Godhead. Trinitarians approach the subject of the Godhead saying that the Godhead is a mystery that no one can understand. And apostolics approach the Godhead by saying the Godhead is a revelation that can clearly be seen, Romans 1.20. So understanding uh, understanding God by David Bernard. And then what I feel is the best book on the Godhead subject is uh, Dr. Bernard's book, A Oneness View of Jesus Christ. I think it's even better than his book, uh, The Oneness of God. But those two books especially, I would recommend to anyone. Have you ever, if you were to go back and look at some of your debates uh, back in those early years, did you ever feel like you failed in what you were trying to accomplish? Um, There was two debates. My first debate on the Godhead, I think I went into it unprepared. Thankfully, it's it's not available on YouTube. <laughs> that was back in the old cassette days, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that all those cassettes are somewhere in the wayside. Brian, I hope we never have to say this when someone asks us this. <laughs> Where is those very first episodes at? Don't worry about it. <laughs> so my, my first debate on um, the Godhead, I was ill-prepared, and it's not that I think that uh, he did a better job presenting his belief in the Trinity— I just believe that I could have done better. And so the second go around, when I had the opportunity to debate it again, I made sure that I was way more prepared. Um, 
does failure motivate you to do better the next time? I want people to understand what I'm saying. Yeah. And if I and if I don't do that, then yes, I'm not doing my job. Yeah. I teach Purpose Institute, and one of the subjects I teach for Purpose Institute is the, the lessons on the Godhead. I, I teach the Godhead. I teach the lessons on baptism, major prophets, the historical poetry books, and um, the lessons on uh, apostolic doctrine stuff. And so one time in teaching the Godhead, I was making the illustration about that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And the word image is the Greek word akon, which is where we get our word icon. And so I made the illustration that uh, the icon on your desktop is the visible image of the invisible program. But you can't take the image and the program and say they are two separate and distinct programs just as Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And I heard this student in class who's a pastor of a church, he whispered, he's like, that's so awesome. And I, he didn't think that I heard him. I turned around and said, no, that's awesome. The fact that you got it, that's awesome. Because if I'm not expressing the gospel to you in a clear way, I'm not doing my job. So yeah, when I go into a debate or just teaching in general, it's not about the flash. It's not about the, the quirky one-liners, although you're going to have your, your zingers from time to time. It's about presenting truth mm-hmm. uh, in the best possible way. Well, Brother Weatherly, we greatly appreciate you taking time on a Saturday to sit down with Brian and I. Uh, let us pick your brain a little bit, learn who you are, and you have such an inspiring story. Um, we greatly appreciate you taking the time. Um, how we end every episode is we would like for you to tell us um, kind of what God's been dealing with you, what's your heartbeat right now. You have the floor, anything Brian and I might have missed, um, something that you can just leave a final word to our listeners. Well, right now where I believe that God has taken my wife and I in ministry, uh, this is something that we haven't really discussed with a lot of people. Uh, we've just prayed about it, and it's amazing how God is opening doors Uh, We have a burden for missions, uh, particularly in Ireland and the United Kingdom. And when Pastor Gaddy would be up preaching and he would say something about missions or we would have a, someone would send uh, pictures from a mission trip and we have missionaries in our church, the Shirley's, you know, they were missionaries in the Dominican Republic and their son is still there. And then um, Selinda Nickel, you know, she worked with MK, uh, missionary kids forever. So we're very missionary uh, oriented at New Life That's Church. That's very Cabot. important. Yes. Uh, so Brother Gaddy would, would joke and he'd look at me and he'd say, Brother Weatherly, you ready to go on that mission trip? And I'm looking at Nicole saying, yeah. have you you been talking to someone? Because we hadn't told anybody mm-hmm. about having a burden to go do mission work in the United Kingdom. And then one day after work, I'm a full-time student at Urshan Graduate School of Theology. And they know when I enrolled they know that, that I have a burden to teach, and I have a burden to teach at the college level also. And at the signing-in ceremony, Sister Jeannie Russell looked at me, and she said, do you want to teach? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, do you want to teach here? I said, yes, ma'am, I do. She said, hurry up. We need you. So they all know that, that my burden is, is to teach. So I get a phone call. I'm driving into uh, home from work, and my phone rings. I don't recognize it doesn't, you know, it's not a number in my phone book. But I recognize the, the area code is from St. Louis, and it's from the college, and it's uh, Sister DeSa from the college. 
and she says to me, by this time I'm walking in, I've got the phone in my ear and I'm talking to her. Um, and she says, Brother Weatherly, we have an opportunity for you to teach. And I want to know if you'd be interested in it. And I said, okay. She said, it's for Harvest Bible College. Would you be interested in teaching the fall and spring semester online for Harvest Bible College? By this time, I'm in my kitchen looking at my wife. And my eyes are just bugging out. Of course, my wife can't hear the conversation on my side. All she can hear is what I'm saying. And, and so when she asked me, would you be interested in teaching for Harvest Bible College? I just immediately responded, yes. And she said, I haven't even told you what the subjects are. I said, it doesn't matter. Yes. The answer is yes. Just send me the information. I'll put the syllabus together. I'll do it. And she said, okay, that's great. Well, we're, we're glad to have you on board. And I hung up the phone and my wife looked at me and she said, what was that? I said, well, I guess I'm teaching for Harvest Bible College now for the spring or the fall and spring semester of the 1920 school year. And my wife says, Harvest Bible College, where is that? And I said, Glasgow. My wife didn't know where Glasgow was. She goes, where's Glasgow? I said, Scotland. And she just freaks out and says, are you kidding me? Because we've had this burden that we haven't told anybody about, about doing mission work in the United Kingdom. So um, we're, I'm preparing through uh, Urshan, working on my Master's of Divinity. My, my end uh, goal is to have a Ph.D., in religion to teach college, uh, Bible college, teach at Urshan or wherever the Lord takes us, and especially to do mission work over in Ireland in the United Kingdom. I want to ask you one last question. Um, what if God calls you to teach abroad? Are you willing to do that? Yes. Is it not crazy sometimes the things God asks you to do, but an open, willing vessel God can use and flow through I want you to speak one last time a word of encouragement to somebody who may not have that clear direction in their life. Well, walking in the kingdom and doing the kingdom work and, and walking in God's will, you have to be willing to, to walk in whatever God tells you to do. And you have to trust that what he tells you to do is for your greater good. Yes, God's not going to tell you to do something that's going to harm you. And no matter what happens in your life and in your ministry, you've just got to trust that this is the will of God. You know, the will of God is not some hula hoop that's being spun around and you just got to catch it at the right moment. Oh, you missed it. Oh, this maybe next time you'll be better. Understand that you are, when you're doing God's work, you are in the will of God. And it's cliche, but preachers say it all the time, but you can't receive anything with your hands closed. Yeah. So you've got to be a willing vessel. You've got to have those hands open and be willing to, to use those hands to work in God's kingdom. About uh, roundabout, how many pastors, ministers, uh, evangelists, whatever you, Sunday school teachers, do you think that you personally teach? Uh, through Purpose Institute, uh, just from 2013 to now, I would guess that me alone, in, in the classes that I've taught, I've probably taught over 50 ministers, leaders in the Arkansas district. And, and I could start naming names of people that are, are district leaders, youth leaders, and, and pastors of churches. Um, and that I would say that those 50-plus are from at least 20 different churches mm -hmm. all over the state of Arkansas. Um, and about how many people do you think those churches represent? the thousands upon thousands. If I could say this about the Arkansas district and districts in general, 
Purpose Institute is one of the great, it's not just a training tool, it's an outreach because you think of all the people that you're, you're influencing and it may be people that in, in the grand scheme of the organization or the district, they may not have, they may not be the conference preacher, but they are touching people's lives. They've been a, just what we went back to about Sunday school teachers and cafeteria lunch ladies. How much of an influence are they because those Purpose Institute students are then taking what they've learned when they hear you teach on the Godhead and they're saying, that's so awesome. They're going to take that back and teach it at their local congregation. I've gotten text messages from students that said, would you mind if I, if I taught the same thing that you taught us? I'm like, no, I don't mind at all. That's what, it, it's all it's God's. For. That's what we're here yeah. for. And so what I was getting to with that is all these people that you have an influence with, either directly or indirectly, are all tied to a, a school lunch lady that prayed for a young man who was from a home of a drug addict, an alcoholic, that the cops had to come in and break through the doors. And and what I want to end this podcast is, is saying a word to the individual out there who's wondering, what is my purpose? What is it? What is my next step? What does the future hold for me? And I would say to you, who is it in your life that you can have influence with? Who is it? Who is the person in your life that you can invest yourself in and you can pour yourself into because you never know what can happen in a person's life, especially when it comes to a child. Uh, again, every Sunday school teacher out there, I hope that you, you can hear these, these words and, and, and take them for what they're worth. As I just encourage you that that student in your Sunday school class, though they may get on your nerves, and when you got it and you bust them back to their house and stuff, they are cussing in the back seat, and you can't stand it. You don't know what the future can hold in that individual, and you don't know if you can be there and be that spiritual mother, or that spiritual father, to a young person or to a new convert or or whatever the case may be. When that person grows to that spiritual level of maturity, the le- the influence they can have, and you may say, "Well, I don't feel like I'm I'm called to be a conference speaker. Or I'm called to pastor a church." The person you influence may be the person that has that calling. That's right. But they need you in their life to pour into them, so that way they can become what God is putting in them. Thank you for listening to the Crucial Conversation. Mm-hmm.